Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. 
This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Haley and Andrew Price, Phoenix Booth, Emma, Jen Howard, Madeline Mason, Lisa Tamborelli, Natalie Baum, Sam O'Connor, Charlotte Long, Kathleen Kaiser, and Nikki Moyer. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. And for those of you who don't know, all the names that I just read are new patrons on Patreon.com, this amazing site where you can go on and support artists and creators that you like. You donate a dollar, two dollars, maybe five dollars a month. At five dollars a month with the Sleepy Podcast, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send poetry readings right to you every other Monday just for donating. Every dollar goes a really, really long way. So if the show works for you, maybe consider donating on patreon.com slash sleepy radio and be a part of making the show. It's also a really good place to get a hold of me. So if you'd like to reach out, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. I would love to hear from you. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lipkowski. And the sleepy cover art is done by Grace Kanan. Well, this is actually the first recording in a long time where I get to record the window open. It's beautiful out here. I really hope it stays this way. But if you hear any birds or maybe a light breeze in the trees, that's what it is, sitting right in front of an open window. So I want to keep reading books that kind of have a feeling of springtime in them and kind of new beginnings. And tonight I'm going to read a book that I have not read before. It's To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. This was written in 1927. It was actually a listener recommendation, and I'm really, really excited to read it. Well, not too excited, because I want you to fall asleep, of course. So, now is the time for you to get really comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Close your eyes, and let me read to you. Yes, of course, it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsey. But you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, 
these words conveyed an extraordinary joy, as if it were settled. The expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he had looked forward for years and years it seemed was, after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within touch. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects with their joys and sorrows cloud what is actually at hand, since to such people even the earliest childhood any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsey, sitting on the floor, cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalog of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a refrigerator as his mother spoke with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. The wheelbarrow the lawnmower, the sound of poplar trees, leaves whitening before rain, rooks cawing, brooms knocking, dresses rustling. All these were so colored and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language, though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly at the sight of human frailty, so that his mother, watching him guide his scissors neatly around the refrigerator, imagined him all red and ermine on a bench or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. But, said his father, stopping in front of the drawing room window, it won't be fine. Had there been an axe handy, a poker, or any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him there and then, James would have seized it. Such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsey excited in his children's breast by his mere presence, standing as now, lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was ten thousand times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth, never tampered with a fact, never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience of any mortal being, least of all his own children, who, sprung from his loins, should be aware from childhood that life is difficult, facts uncompromising. And the passage to that fabled land where our brightest hopes are extinguished, our frail barks founder in darkness. Here Mr. Ramsey would straighten his back, and there with little blue eyes upon the horizon. One that needs, above all, courage, truth, and the power to endure. But it may be fine. I expect it will be fine, said Mrs. Ramsey, making some little twist of the reddish-brown stocking she was knitting, impatiently. If she finished it tonight, 
if they did go to the lighthouse after all. It was to be given to the lighthouse keeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculosis hip, together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco, indeed. Whatever she could find lying about, not really wanted, but only littering the room, to give those poor fellows who must be bored to death sitting all day with nothing to do but polish the lamp and trim the wick and rake about on their scrap of garden. Something to amuse them. For how would you like to be shut up a whole month at a time, and possibly more in stormy weather, upon a rock the size of a tennis lawn, she would ask, and have no letters or newspapers, and to see nobody. If you were married, not to see your own wife, not to know how your children were, if they were ill, if they had fallen down and broken their legs or arms, to see the same dreary waves breaking week after week, and then a dreadful storm coming, and the windows covered in spray, and birds dashed against the lamp, the whole place rocking, and not be able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea. How would you like that? she asked addressing herself particularly to her daughters. So she added, rather differently, one must take them whatever comforts one can. It's due, Wes, said the atheist Tansley, holding his bony fingers spread so that the wind blew through them, for he was sharing Mr. Ramsey's evening walk up and down, up and down the terrace. That is to say, the wind blew from the worst possible direction for landing at the lighthouse. Yes, he did say disagreeable things, Mrs. Ramsey admitted. It was odious of him to rub this in and make James still more disappointed. But at the same time, she would not let them laugh at him. The atheist, they called him. The little atheist. Rose mocked him. Prue mocked him. Andrew, Jasper, Roger mocked him. Even the old badger without a tooth in his head had bit him for being, as Nancy put it, the 110th young man to chase them all the way up to the Hebrids when it was ever so much nicer to be alone. Nonsense, said Mrs. Ramsey, with great severity. Apart from the habit of exaggeration which they had from her, and from the implication, which was true, that she asked too many people to stay and had to lodge some in the town. She could not bear incivility to her guests, to young men in particular, who were poor as church mice. Exceptionally able, her husband said, as great admirers, and come there for a holiday. Indeed, she had the whole of the other sects under her protection, for reasons she cannot explain, for their chivalry and valor, for the fact that they negotiated treaties, ruled India, controlled finance. Finally, for an attitude towards herself which no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable, something trustful, childlike, reverential, which an old woman 
could take from a young man without a loss of dignity, and woe betide the girl. Pray heaven, it was none of her daughters, who did not feel the worth of it, and all it implied to the marrow of her bones. She turned with severity upon Nancy. He had not chased them, she said. He had been asked. They must find a way out of it all. There might be some simpler way, some less laborious way, she sighed. When she looked in the glass and saw her hair gray, her cheeks sunk at fifty, she thought. Possibly she might have managed things better. Her husband, money, his books. But for her own part, she would never for a single second regret her decision, evade difficulties, or slur over duties. She was now formidable to behold, and it was only in silence, looking up from their plates, after she had spoken so severely about Charles Tansley that her daughters, Prue, Nancy, and Rose, could sport with infidel ideas which they had brewed for themselves of a life different from hers. In Paris, perhaps, a wilder life, not always taking care of some man or other, for there was in all their minds a mute questioning of deference and chivalry, of the Bank of England and the Indian Empire, of ringed fingers and lace. Though to them, all there was something in this of the essence of beauty which called out the manliness in their girlish hearts and made them, as they sat beneath their mother's eyes, honor her strange severity, her extreme courtesy, like a queen's raising from the mud to wash a beggar's dirty foot, when she admonished them so very severely about that wretched atheist who had chased them or speaking accurately, been invited to stay with them in the Isle of Skye. There'll be no landing at the lighthouse tomorrow, said Charles Tansley, clapping his hands together as he stood at the window with her husband. Surely, he had said enough. She wished they would both leave her and James alone to go on talking. She looked at him, he was such a miserable specimen, the children said, all humps and hollows. He couldn't play cricket. He poked. He shuffled. He was a sarcastic brute, Andrew said. They knew what he liked best, to be forever walking up and down, up and down with Mr. Ramsey and saying who had won this, who had won that who was a first-rate man at Latin verses, who was brilliant, but I think fundamentally unsound, who was undoubtedly the ablest fellow in Balliol, who had buried his light temporarily at Bristol or Bedford, but was bound to be heard of later, when his prolegomena, of which Mr. Tansley had the first pages in proof with him, if Mr. Ramsey would like to see them, to some branch of mathematics or philosophy saw the light of day. That was what they talked about. She cannot help laughing herself sometimes. She said the other day something about 
waves, mountains high. Yes, said Charles Tansley. It was a little rough. Are you drenched to the skin, she had said. Damp, not wet through, said Mr. Tansley, pinching his sleeve, feeling his socks. But it was not that they minded, the children said. It was not his face. It was not his manners. It was him. His point of view. Well, they talked about something interesting. People, music, history, anything. Even said it was a fine evening. So why not sit outdoors? Then, what the complaint of Charles Tansley was that, until he had turned the whole thing around, and made it somehow reflect himself and disparage them. He was not satisfied. And he would go to picture galleries, they said. And he would ask no one. Did one like his tie? God knows, said Rose, one did not. Disappearing as stealthily as stags from the dinner table, directly when the meal was over, the eight sons and daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay sought their bedrooms. Their fastness in a house where there was no other privacy to debate anything, everything. Tansley's tie, the passing of the reform bill, seabirds and butterflies, people, while the sun poured into those attics, which a plank alone separated from each other, so that every footstep could be plainly heard and the Swiss girl sobbing for her father who was dying of cancer in a valley of the grizzons, and lit up bats, flannels, straw hats, ink pots, paint pots, beetles, and the skulls of small birds, while it drew from the long frilled strips of seaweed pinned to the wall a smell of salt and weeds, which was in the towels too, gritty, with sand for bathing. Strife, divisions, Difference of opinion. Prejudices twisted into the very fiber of being. Oh, that they should begin so early, Mrs. Ramsay deplored. They were so critical, her children. They talked in such nonsense. She went from the dining room, holding James by the hand, since he would not go with the others. It seemed to her such nonsense. Inventing differences when people, heaven knows, were different enough without that. The real differences, she thought, standing by the drawing room window, are enough. Quite enough. She had in mind at the moment, rich and poor, high and low, the great in birth receiving from her, half-grudging, some respect. For had she not in her veins the blood of that very noble, a slightly mythical Italian house whose daughters scattered about English drawing rooms in the 19th century had lisped so charmingly and stormed so wildly and all her wit and her bearing and her temper came from them and not the sluggish English or the cold Scotch. But more profoundly, she ruminated the other problem of rich and poor and the things she saw with her own eyes, weekly, daily, here or in London. When she visited this window, with that struggling wife in person with a bag on her arm, and a notebook and pencil, 
which she wrote down in columns carefully ruled for their purpose wages and spendings, employment and unemployment, in the hope that thus she would cease to be a private woman whose charity was half a sop to her own indignation, half a relief to her own curiosity, and become what with her untrained mind she greatly admired, an investigator, elucidating the social problem. Insoluble questions they were, it seemed to her, standing there, holding James by the hand. He had followed her into the drawing room, that young man they laughed at. He was standing by the table, fidgeting with something awkwardly, feeling himself out of things, as she knew without looking round. They had all gone, the children, Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh, Augustus Carmichael, her husband. They had all gone. So she turned with a sigh and said, Would it bore you to come with me, Mr. Tansley? She had a dull errand in the town. She had a letter or two to write. She would be ten minutes, perhaps. She would put on her hat. And with her basket and parasol, there she was again ten minutes later, giving out a sense of being ready, of being equipped for a jaunt, which, however, she must interrupt for a moment. As she passed the tennis lawn, who was basking with his yellow cat's eyes ajar, so that like a cat, they seemed to reflect the branches moving or the clouds passing, but to give no inkling of any inner thoughts or emotion whatsoever, if you wanted anything. For they were making the great expedition, she said, laughing. They were going to the town. Stamps, writing paper, tobacco, she suggested, stopping by his side. But no. He wanted nothing. His hands clasped themselves over his capacious paunch. His eyes blinked, as if he would like to reply kindly to those blandishments. She was seductive, but a little nervous. But could not, sunk as he was in gray-green somnolence, which embraced them all, without need of words, in a vast or benevolent lethargy of well-wishing. All the house, all the world, all the people in it. For he had slipped into his glass at lunch a few drops of something, which accounted, the children thought, for the vivid streak of canary yellow and mustache and beard that was otherwise milk white. No, nothing, he murmured. He should have been a great philosopher, said Mrs. Ramsay as they went down the road to the fishing village. But it had made an unfortunate marriage. Holding her black parasol very erect and moving with an indescribable air of expectation as if she were going to meet someone around the corner, she told the story. An affair at Oxford with some girl, an early marriage, poverty, going to India, translating a little poetry very beautifully, I believe, being willing to teach the boys Persian or Hindustani, 
But what really was the use of that? And then lying as they saw him on the lawn. It flattered him, snubbed as he had been. It soothed him that Mrs. Ramsey should tell him this. Charles Tansley revived, insinuating too as she did the greatness of the man's intellect, even in his decay, the subjection of all wives. Not that she blamed the girl, and the marriage had been happy enough, she believed, to their husband's labors. She made him feel better pleased with himself than he had done yet. That he would have liked if they had taken a cab, for example, to have paid the fare. As for her little bag, might he not carry that? No, no, she said. She always carried that herself. She did too. Yes, he felt that in her. He felt many things, something in particular that excited him and disturbed him for reasons which he could not give. He would like her to see him, gowned and hooded, walking in a procession, a fellowship, a professorship. He felt capable of anything and saw himself, but what was she looking at? At a man passing a bill. The vast flapping sheet flattened itself out, and each shove of the brush revealed fresh legs, hoops, horses, glistening reds and blues, beautifully smooth until half the wall was covered with advertisement of a circus. A hundred horsemen, twenty performing seals, lions, tigers, craning forwards, where she was not short-sighted. She read it out. We'll visit this town, she read. It was terribly dangerous work for the one-armed man, she exclaimed, to stand on top of a ladder like that. His left arm had been cut off in a reaping machine two years ago. Let us all go, she cried, moving on, as if all these riders and horses had filled her with childlike exultation and made her forget her pity. Let's go, he said, repeating her words, clicking them out, however, with a self-consciousness that made her wince. Let us all go to the circus. No, he could not say it right. He could not feel it right. But why not, she wondered. What was wrong with him then? She liked him warmly at the moment. Had they not been taken, she asked, to circuses when they were children. Never, he answered. As if she asked the very thing he wanted. I've been longing all these days to say how they did not go to circuses. It was a large family, nine brothers and sisters, and his father was a working man. My father is a chemist, Mrs. Ramsey. He keeps a shop. He himself had paid his own way since he was 13. Often he went without a great coat in the winter. He could never return hospitality. Those were his parched if words at college. 
He had to make things last twice the time the other people did. He smoked the cheapest tobacco, shag, the same the old men did in the quays. He worked hard, seven hours a day. His subject was now the influence of something upon somebody. They were walking on, and Mrs. Ramsey did not quite catch the meaning, only the words here and there. Dissertation, fellowship, readership, lectureship. She could not follow the ugly academic jargon that rattled itself off so glibly, but said to herself that she saw now why going to the circus had knocked him off his perch. Poor little man and why he came out instantly with all that about his father and mother and brothers and sisters. And she would see to it that they didn't laugh at him anymore. She would tell Prue about it. What he would have liked, she supposed, would have been to say how he had not gone to the circus, but to Ibsen with the Ramses. He was an awful prig. Oh yes, insufferable bore. For they had reached the town now and were in the main street with carts grinding past in the cobbles. Still, he went on talking about settlements and teaching and working men and helping her own class and lectures till she gathered that he had got back an entire self-confidence, had recovered from the circus and was about and now again she liked him warmly to tell her but here the house is falling away on both sides she came out on the quay and the whole bay spread before them and Mrs. Ramsey could not help exclaiming oh how beautiful for the great playful of blue water was before her a hoary lighthouse distant austere in the midst and on the right as far as the eye could see fading and falling and soft low pleats the green sand dunes with the wild flowing grasses on them which had always seemed to be running away into some moon country uninhabited of men. That was the view, she said, stopping, growing grayer eyes that her husband loved. She paused a moment, but now, she said, artists had come here. There, indeed, only a few paces off stood one of them, in Panama hat and yellow boots, seriously, softly, absorbedly. For all that, he was watched by ten little boys with an air of profound contentment, his round red face gazing. And then, when he had gazed, dipping, imbuing the tip of his brush in some soft mound of green or pink, since Mr. Ponsford had been there three years before. All the pictures were like that, she said, green and gray, with lemon-colored sailing boats and pink women on the beach. But her grandmother's friends, she said, glancing discreetly as they passed, took the greatest pains. First they mixed their own colors, and then they ground them and they put damp cloths to keep them moist. So Mr. Tansley supposed she meant him to see that this man's picture was skimpy, 
was how it once said. The colors weren't solid, was how it once said. Under the influence of that extraordinary emotion which had been growing all the walk, had begun in the garden when he had wanted to take her back, had increased in the town when he had wanted to tell her everything about himself. He was coming to see himself, and everything he had ever known gone crooked a little. It was awfully strange. There he stood in the parlor of the pokey little house where she had taken him, waiting for her, while she went upstairs a moment to see a woman. He heard her quick step above, heard her voice cheerful and low, looked at the mats, tea caddies, glass shades, waited quite impatiently, looked forward eagerly to the walk home, determined to carry her back, then heard her come out, shut a door, say they must keep the windows open and the doors shut, ask at the house for anything they wanted. She must be talking to a child, when suddenly in she came, stood for a moment silent, as if she had been pretending up there, and for a moment let herself be now. She stood quite motionless for a moment against a picture of Queen Victoria, wearing a blue ribbon of the garter, when all at once he realized that it was this. It was this. She was the most beautiful person he had ever seen. With stars in her eyes and veils in her hair, with cyclamen and wild violets, what nonsense was he thinking? She was fifty at least. She had eight children. Stepping through fields or flowers and taking to her breast buds that had broken and lambs that had fallen with stars in her eyes and the wind in her hair, he had hold of her back. Goodbye, Elsie, she said, and they walked up the street, she holding her parasol erect and walking as if she expected to meet someone around the corner. Well, for the first time in his life, Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. A man, digging in a drain, stopped digging and looked at her, let his arm fall down and looked at her. For the first time in his life, Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. He felt the wind and the cyclamen and the violets for he was walking with a beautiful woman. He had all of her back. Perhaps you will wake up and find the sun shining and the birds singing, she said compassionately soothing the little boy's hair. For her husband, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine, and dashed his spirits, she could see. This going to the lighthouse was a passion of his. She saw, and then as if her husband had not enough, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine tomorrow, his odious little man went and rubbed it all and over again. Perhaps it will be fine tomorrow, she said, smoothing his hair. All she could do now was admire the refrigerator and turn the pages of the store's list in the hope that she might come upon something like a rake or a mowing machine, which, with its prongs and its handles, would need the greatest skill 
and care and cutting out. All these young men parodied her husband. She reflected. He said it would rain. They said it would be a positive tornado. But here, as she turned the page, suddenly, her search for the picture of a rake or a mowing machine was interrupted. The gruff murmur, irregularly broken by the taking out of pipes and putting in of pipes which had kept on assuring her. Though she could not hear what was said, as she sat in the window which opened on the terrace, that the men were happily talking, this sound, which had lasted now half an hour and had taken its place soothingly in the scale of sounds pressing on top of her, such as the tap of balls upon bats, the sharp, sudden bark now and then, how's that, how's that, of the children playing cricket, had ceased, so that the monstrous fall of the waves on the beach, which the most part beat a measure and soothing tattoo of her thoughts, and seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again, as she sat with the children, the words of some old cradle song, murmured by nature, I am guarding you. I am your support. But at other times, suddenly and unexpectedly, especially when her mind raised itself slightly from the task actually in hand, had so much kindly meaning. But like a ghostly roll of drums remorsefully beat the measure of life, made one think of destruction of the island and its engulfment in the sea and warned her whose day would slip past in one quick doing after another, and it was all firmal as a rainbow. This sound which had been obscured and concealed under the other sounds suddenly thundered hollow in her ears and made her look up with an impulse of terror. They had ceased to talk. That was the explanation. Falling in one second from the tension which had gripped her to the other extreme, which, as if to recoup her from her unnecessary expense of emotion, was cool, amused, and even faintly malicious. She concluded that poor Charles Tansley had been shed. That was of little account to her. If her husband required sacrifices, and indeed he did, she cheerfully offered up to him Charles Tansley, who had snubbed her little boy. One moment more, with her head raised, she listened, as if she waited for some habitual sound, some regular mechanical sound, and then, hearing something rhythmical, half said, half chanted, beginning in the garden, as her husband beat up and down the terrace, something between a croak and a song, who was soothed, she was soothed once more, assured again that all was well, and looking down at the book on her knee, found the picture of a pocket knife with six blades, which could only be cut out if James was very careful.
Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.